first six Lord's Days of 2024, I've given myself to the task of expounding the content and context of the 19th Psalm. As we came to the end of that series last Lord's Day, I was for many days during the week filled with uncertainty as to where to go in our Lord's Day morning ministries. And though I did not intend to spend six weeks on one psalm, it has increasingly become my thought that we are not done with the book of Psalms. I did raise the issue at prayer meeting, and I asked those that were there at that particular prayer meeting to pray that God would direct me in a clear path, and I'd sought their counsel, and everybody said, the psalms have been brilliant, so go ahead. Okay, so if, I hope you all think that, not just the people that were at the prayer meeting, to think that the Psalms are brilliant, because if you don't think that, you should. <laughs> the prayer, the Psalms are brilliant, more than brilliant. They're probably the favorite portion of Scripture for most believers from the Old Testament. Anyway, as a, a young man, I was, and I was when I had to, when I got my greetings, and I had to get into the military, when I joined the military, or I was drafted into the military, more accurately, they gave me one of these pocket testaments. I think it was the Salvation Army that actually published it and placed it. It wasn't the Gideons. And I carried that with me through my, my um, military years. Uh, fit right in my pocket. And of course that had the New Testament and it had the Psalms and the Proverbs. And the Psalms as a young Christian became of course one of the favorite portions of Scripture to read. Um, but yet I'm not at all sure, I understood a whole lot about what I was reading, except it, it sounded good. It, it, uh, it, hold, it held forth aspects of the divine presence and the divine goodness that were thrilling to my heart as a young believer. But yet I didn't have an appreciation of the fact that the Psalms were not just a, just a collection of separate songs that were put together into a, a book, um, although at one time, of course, every one of those psalms were written in individual times and in individual circumstances, yet when they were placed together as a book, there were people who were concerned to put it together in such a way that it would make sense to the reader, and it would be useful for the fact that the psalms were collected to be a songbook for the purposes of worship. It was the songbook of the Old Testament people of God. We come to worship this morning and we sing out of the Trinity hymnal and out of the, a new hymnal that we have gotten. And one thing I know about the Trinity hymnal, when they put this thing together, they didn't just slap together a bunch of songs because they sounded good. It wasn't just like the Silver Dollar Survey or the Top 40 or the Billboard 100 or 700 that they put together because it just sounded good. There were thought that was placed into it. In fact, when you look at the table of contents, if, if you're in the know, this is a Presbyterian hymn book, by the way. And it's put together in terms of a Presbyterian confession of faith and a Presbyterian catechism. Question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, uh, what, is, what is God or who is God? And the answer is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, uh, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. And you look at the opening of the, the book and you see it's exactly along those lines that this hymnal was ordered. It begins with the divine perfections, and then when it begins with the divine perfections, 
It begins with infinite, eternal, unchangeable, his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and truth. It takes us through the first 90 some odd hymns of the hymnal, and then it goes into a lot of the matters pertaining to the confession of faith, and pretty much the order in which it's found, but not completely. But yet it was those documents of the Presbyterian Church that ordered the hymnal, and you know why? Because they were concerned to sing their faith. That's why. That's why. It wasn't just because, well, songs sound good and it's nice to sing and just give us the ability to have the anthems of the nation or we'll move people more than politicians will do. I forgot who said that. But if you do order the music, it's moving. People are moved. I grew up in the pro protest areas of the 60s and it was the protest songs that moved me out into the streets to engage in demonstrations against the war and for the civil rights movement and all the rest that I was part of. Yeah, I, sorry guys, I came from the 60s. But thankfully I remember it. A lot of people in the 60s don't remember it at all. But I'm thankful I do. But my point is music is a powerful thing. And music is part of the church's life. We're told that uh, we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And so it's important to understand that these psalms are put together in an arrangement that does enable the worshiper to sing Israel's faith, to sing of the faith of the covenant people of God in a way that brings their history to bear, in a way that brings their understanding of the God they worshipped and served. In the 19th Psalm, I presented to you the notion that that was a central psalm in a whole cluster of psalms. I mentioned that term cluster of psalms, and you perhaps scratched your head and said, I never heard of a cluster of psalms before. I heard of the book of the psalms, but a cluster of psalms? Who ever heard of that? Well, it may have sounded new to you. In fact, in the psalm studies of the last 40 years, a great deal of new vocabulary has been I don't know if I want to, don't want to say invented, but it's used to describe what is increasing measures of understanding the interrelatedness of the Psalms to one another. Words like clusters, collections, shapings have been added to what is basically the dictionary of Psalm studies, the lexicon of Psalm studies. And uh, not all of this is bad. And I know sometimes you, you say something new or you bring to light to something new and people say, well, if it's new, it isn't true. That's not, that's not right. <laughs> Things are new that are true. I think it's more right to say just because it's new, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But we need to do what Paul said we are to do. We're to prove all things, hold fast what is good. And when something comes along and they say, well, look, we've been studying the Psalms and we think that there's more interrelatedness than maybe previous generations knew between the Psalms, don't throw, don't just cast it off and say, well, that's a new idea. I'm not going to give it any consideration. Test it. Put it to the test. And I believe that there's a greater recognition that this collection of 150 Psalms gathered into one book for the purpose of of religious purpose, of worship and praise in the synagogue and the temple, it has interrelatedness because it has a story to tell. A story that is advanced by the very way this once collection of independent songs were put together. There's a sense in which it's a collection of collections. The psalms were not haphazardly arranged, but give every evidence of being carefully shaped to tell the story of Israel, the story of their God, the story of his plan and his purpose with respect to the establishment of his king and of his kingdom for his glory and for the good of Israel, his people. 
And I've been excited about new ground that's been broken in the book of the Psalms. Just this past week, I presented uh, some of these things to the group of pastors that met in Dolgeville. And I was very concerned as to what they would think. One guy's like a new Old Testament scholar. He has a doctorate in Old Testament studies. He's written a book on the temple vision of Ezekiel 40-48. to Imagine doing that. That was his doctoral dissertation, and it's brilliant. And he gave it to me to read, and I knew it was brilliant. So here I'm in his presence, and I got these ideas of things I've been reading, things I've been studying, things I'm excited about. And I was wondering what in the world he thought about it. And, you know, I went up to before the lecture, I said, uh, have you ever read anything upon the subject? I, I used the term, the shaping of the Psalms. Because that's what gets used in, in uh, the literature. And he looked at me, he smiled, and he said, well, yes, I have. And then he sent me a review that he wrote on a, a book review published by the Gospel Coalition. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking him if he knew about it. He knew a lot about it, and it's good that he knows a lot about it. And I was very pleased that he thought that the things I presented were good. So I'm encouraged to do that. So what I want to do is I want to present that surrounding cluster I've done some stuff with you in drips and drabs over the last few years in Sunday school, uh, sometimes in the afternoon message when we try to preach through the Psalms. Um, I, I thought it would be good, before we look at the cluster of Psalms themselves, to make sure we're all together on this, to make sure that the things I've presented in various ways in drips and drabs over the last couple of years have been presented to the wider group of attenders here so that... Um, you know at least what I'm thinking when I talk about the Psalms and their interrelatedness and the way in which they tell a story. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to say something about the shaping of the book itself. I won't say everything that could be said. I'm very limited in my scope this morning, but I want to say something about the shaping. I want to say something about the substance of the cluster we'll, we will be studying, which is Psalm 15 to Psalm 24. I'll give you a little bit of a view of what I want to do with respect to that. And you can assess how long is it going to be at this before we get back to the Gospels. Well, you, you, you'll have some clue once we're do, done with that. And then I want to say something about the setting of Psalm 15, the first psalm in this cluster of psalms that we're going to look at this morning. First of all then, shaping. The shaping of the psalms. Why is Psalm 90 Psalm 90 and not Psalm 3? Why is Psalm 23 23? and not 145. Is there a reason? Could it have been put together in any old way that you would like it to be put away, or to like it to be put that particular way? Well, again, I think the people that compiled this, and I believe they did it with the guidance of the Lord under the direction of the Holy Spirit, so that what we have is, in fact, a, a, a book that is shaped the right way, uh, the way God wanted it to be shaped so that it would be telling the story correctly and right. And though it would be impossible in one third of the message that I'm going to do this morning to get into all the details of this broad subject, I want to confine myself to the first 24 Psalms. I'm going to, in the next 10 minutes, give you a distillation of the first 24 Psalms and why I think they are where they are. Now, I will just say that the book of Psalms is a collection of songs that is comprised of five books. You all know that? 
There are five books in the Psalms. And how did we derive at that? Did everybody always know that? Well, well what everybody did notice is that at the end of each of these, what we call books of the Psalms, there's a doxology that is spoken. Psalm 41, which ends the first book, ends with the words of verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And you know what happens there? Well, there's the ending of a collection of some 39 David Psalms. They're all called Psalms of David. It ends with a doxology. And the very next Psalm, all of a sudden, we're not with David's Psalms any longer. 42 is the Sons of Korah Psalms. That begins. And so you got a new collection. And it ends with a doxology. So on one side, the doxology ends the book. The next Psalms, it begins a new book with new collection. Korah Psalms. You see the same thing at the end of Psalm 72 that ends book 2. Turn to Psalm 72. And here's even more clear that these are separate books. These are books. It's all one book, but there are these five books. Because here we have the doxology in verse 18 in Psalm 72. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That's the doxology. And then look at what we read. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Another David collection came in and now they're gone. They're ended. So apparently at one time, Psalm 72 ended a collection of Psalms. It says it ended, didn't it? But the book continues. But it had the remnant of the fact that it was once its own book that ended at this point by the fact that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended in verse 20. But then the David Psalms of 70, uh, of, of those earlier Psalms, now are replaced in Psalm 73 with a new author, a Psalm, a psalm of Asaph. You have an Asaph collection that follows. So you have a doxology followed by a new accreditation of authorship to another group of psalms. So these are collections, this is a collection of collections of, 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 of existing material, existing songs, that again were put together for the purpose of worship. But why are they put together in this particular way? Well, let me give you a sense of what I think is going on here. In Psalms 1 and 2, we have what are called orphan psalms. We'll have to maybe shed a bit of a tear at this point because an orphan psalm is a psalm that doesn't have ownership. Nobody claims ownership of the psalms. The sons of Asaph, or the sons of Korah, don't claim ownership of one and two. David doesn't claim ownership of one and two, although I know Psalm 2 says, uh, Acts 2 says that uh, David said in the second psalm. But it could well be that. Uh, this whole book is a, da- is, is a book of David. It's about David. It's about really the Davidic kingdom. It's about the Messianic kingdom. So what exactly Peter meant when he attributes David as to saying these words, it may be that he has an idea of Davidic authorship, but to me that's not the point. There's no authorship accredited here because you know why? These Psalms are meant to be an introduction to the whole book. Psalms 1 and 2 are meant to be an introduction to the whole book. And look at Psalm 1, how it begins. Blessed is the man. And look at Psalm 2 and how it ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It begins and ends with the word blessed. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the instruction, the law, the Torah, the word. His delight is in God's words. And on his law he meditates day and night. And then in 
in the end of chapter of, of, of Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Bless are all who take refuge in him. How is blessing to be found? It's to be found through the word, and it's found through faith commitment to the king, to the son, to the, to, to the one who is the messianic king, David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what does blessed mean? Well, blessed means that God has purposed that we should be as happy as it's possible to be as sinners in a fallen world. Because you see, the original creation held forth blessing, didn't it? God created man and woman in his image and likeness, and he blessed them and said, he blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And as a result of sin, the blessing has been replaced by a curse. Chapter 3 doesn't speak of blessing, it speaks of curse. The duration of creation's blessings. How once again we can be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it through the Word of God and through the Son of God. That's how it comes. And you see, Psalm 1 speaks to that very issue of the restoration of humanity to paradise. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. God's concerned that we bear fruit for his glory and that we do it in a way that brings us back to that garden picture. The picture of the streams that ran through Eden. The picture of the tree of life. He made us for joy. He made us for all of these things as we are in his presence. It is the word of God that brings us back to that blessedness. And then it's the king who also brings us back to the blessedness. That blessedness. God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God's the one who determines who's to be the king. Now thankfully, God does not restore us to fruitfulness and blessedness and says, okay guys, now that you're back to the blessings of my salvation and the blessings of my word, now you're prepared to rule the world. I don't want to rule the world. I don't want any minister to rule the world. I don't want any group of ministers to rule the world. I don't want any group of preachers to rule the world. They should stick to in their lane. <laughs> Preach God's word. They're not competent fit to rule the world. This whole idea of a Christian theocracy. This whole idea of coming back to some kind of a original intention of the designers of our constitution. The Christians should reign and Jews and everybody else should not. It's absurd. It's historically bogus and it's biblically fallacious because only one has the right to rule the world and only one has, has been given all authority in heaven and earth and you and I should be glad it's in the hands of Jesus and not in the hands of, I don't know, Pat Robertson or Jim Baker or whoever it is, Jimmy Swagger, whoever it is that wants to rule the world. Those people have no business having any power, even in their churches. It's sad to say they're not made accountable to God's word. Why would you want them to rule the world? Rule the country? That's ridiculous. Jesus has the right to rule because power is safe in his hands. Power is safe in his hands. And authority in his hands is a good thing. In our hands it would be a horrible thing. So through the king and through the word we're restored to our rightful place in God's world and the hope of God's continued presence and blessing with us as his people.
But then Psalm 3 comes along. And now we're in a section of David Psalms. And all of these David Psalms are called laments because they speak about the complaints that we have in the world because of enemies, because of foes. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. David's kingdom, the Davidic king. See, what happened after the fall? God said, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God has his people in the world. They're the seed of the woman. But the devil has his tares in the world. That's the seed of the serpent. Satan and his brood. And they conspire against God. They conspire against God's kingdom. And so in 3 to 14, you know what you have? You have the presence of the enemy's psalm. The enemies that are seeking to overturn and subvert David's kingdom as David seeks to rule in the midst of his enemies, establish his kingdom in the midst of his foes, you have the reality that there's distress, there's the need to cry to God continually, Lord, break their teeth, strike them on the cheek. Trouble that these enemies have conspired against me, where these enemies have conspired against me. And so, the highlight of a world in sin where the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at odds and enmity, uh, brings this tension, brings this misery, brings this difficulty to the kingdom and the establishment of the kingdom. That's the, that's the presence of the enemy's cluster, you might say. All of those Psalms, 3 to 14, again and again and again, it's talking about the enemies and how the enemies affect the kingdom of God in the world. But then Psalm 15 comes along. That's where our Psalms of this new section begin. And this new section, that's the language that's used. He was in a constricted area in Psalm 3 and 4. Now he's in a broad area when it comes to Psalm 18. God's come with his deliverance. God's come with his presence. And so even though the enemies are present, what does Psalm 23 say? He's prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The enemies may be present, but God's present. And the presence of God makes all the difference in the world. The enemies can cry out, they can bark, they can look to persecute, they can look to bring trouble on every front. But because God is present, it's time to party. Or at least banquet. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that a great reality? Though the enemies multiply, God's presence more than compensates, more than overturns everything the enemy would seek to do. The New Testament version is 1 Peter chapter 4. Though they persecute you and the fiery trial that comes amongst you, he says rejoice because the Spirit of God and the spirit of glory rests upon you. God's presence rests upon the hearts and minds and souls of his saints. So in the midst of the fiery trial, we're not burned. In the midst of the fiery trial, we don't fold. In the midst of the fiery trial, we don't run. We don't say, I'm forsaken of heaven. No, God is with us. And because he's with us, it makes all the difference in the world. I told you, it took me a little more than 10 minutes, but I got through the first 24 Psalms. Psalm 24, 
The, the first 24 is the introduction that speaks to the issue of how blessedness is restored. And then the reality of the enemies and the reality of the God who's present with his people in the midst of all of life's concerns. But now, the cluster itself, 15 through 24. These are all presence of the Lord's Psalms. God is present. Not so much salvation's future, it's now. Not so much that we're a people of hope, we're a people of confident faith because of a present God who is with us. But as I said in the study of Psalm 19, central to the reality of God's presence is the centrality of the word or the centrality of God's revelation. God, the God who reveals himself in the heavens. The God who reveals himself in his words. Draws near through that revelation and brings us into his presence so that the word of God mediates the reality of that presence. And where that occurs... There are the differing concerns of each of these individual psalms. Now this cluster presents itself sort of in pairs, in pairs that are on both sides of Psalm 19. The question begins with Psalm 15. Our brother read it. How shall we approach the Lord? How shall we approach his holy hill? The same thoughts are there in chapter 24 of how we approach the Lord, how we approach his holy hill. Some calling that the entrance into his presence psalm. That the entrance into his presence in 15 and 24. Psalm 16 and 23 have to do with delight or fullness in his presence, the joy of his presence. And then 17 and 22 have to do with vindication from his presence. How we who may be assailed and falsely charged and persecuted and wrongly viewed and slandered how we became, we are made right with God and vindicated by God in the midst of a fallen world. And then 18 is paired with 20 and 21 in declaring victory from his presence. So we move from entrance to his presence to delight and joy in his presence to vindication from his presence to the declaration of victory in the presence of the Lord. Now the presence of the Lord's Psalms, these Psalms, remember I said they all seem to echo the book of Genesis. I called that with the guys up in, um, in Dolgeville. I said it's that the book of Genesis has Genesis vibes in the first book of the Psalms. Gotta go, gotta go back to the 60s for people to talk about vibes. But we all talked about vibes back then. And there's even a song that the Beach Boys sang called Good Vibrations. I'm picking up good vibrations. It's bringing me excitation. And that's how I feel when I, see, when I read the Psalms. I get the Genesis vibrations that come into the Psalms. And they're, I'm picking them up and they're exciting me. <laughs> so I sing good vibrations when I do my Bible study. But it's really a reality that you pick up on these themes of the book of Genesis here in these Psalms and it ought to excite us. And this matter of the presence of the Lord brings to mind the reality that the opening chapters of Genesis... Tell us we're made for God's presence. Man made in God's image, was to, were to, they were, we were to dwell in his presence. That's why the end of creation is the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the rest of God. God enters his rest on the seventh day. And man's image is to rest with God in the beholding of his creation, enjoying it, blessing him, praising him. And in all of our lives, we are to live in God's presence. 
That's why God walked with the man in the, full, in the cool of the day. And when sin entered into the world, what happened? They were cast out from the presence of the Lord. That's what happened. God cast them out from His presence. Sent them east of Eden. Put up a flaming sword that turned every which way. Keeping the way of the tree of life. What's the way back into God's presence? Well, clearly Cain didn't find it. He killed his brother. And then God curses him. And then he goes and it says he went east. Out from the presence of the Lord. He went further away from where God dwelt with man in, the, in Eden. Man's moving further and further and further away from God. Away from the presence of the Lord. But now this is the way back. This is the way back to His presence. What Christ has done to open up the way of access into His presence. The Word of God instructing us how to get back to the garden. That's another song from the 60s. Johnny Mitchell wrote about Maxie Asger's farm and three days of a loving up in Sullivan County. But fellow, folks, if you know that Psalm Woodstock, we don't get back to the garden through three days of a loving. We get back to the garden through the mighty act of God's redemption in Christ. It's not we get ourselves back to the garden, it's God brings us back to the garden through the work of Christ's redemption. And again, these are psalms that speak of that redemption, speak of that reinstatement into the presence of God and brings us back from where sin had driven us so very far away. Now what I want to do just finally, in our final moments together this morning, is I want to give you something of the setting of Psalm 15. I realize I'm not going to be able to preach on the whole of it, but we do have the first of these entrance psalms, entrance into the presence of the Lord psalms. And what I want to point out to you is that this is a psalm that prizes what was often never prized in Israel. Because you see, Israel was given the worship. They were given the tabernacle. They were given the temple. They were given the sacrificial system. They were given all the mechanics that spoke of man's return to God. Man's return to God's presence. But you know what happened is they put the ritual over the relationship. They put the ritual over the relationship. They went through the motions but forgot the Lord in the midst of it. They prized the mechanics of worship rather than the reality of worship that God called them to. And so Israel had a history of apostasy from true worship. They never got it right. No sooner did they taken out of Egypt, they're telling Aaron, make us gods to lead us. And they make the golden calf. They were so accustomed to the gods that the nations worshipped, they never got God's spirituality right. They never got the fact that they didn't see any form. They heard a voice from heaven on Mount Sinai, but they didn't see any form. And they thought that if they could make a, a God like the nations had, well then they, that, that would be good. But God said, no. He's not to be worshipped in accordance with human forms. He's not to be worshipped in accordance with images. You shall make no graven image is one of the great rules of worship given to Israel. And yet they're constantly apostatizing from the Lord and from his true worship. And a lot of what they did was they especially prized their rituals 
over morality. They never thought, well, this God calls us into his presence. What does that require of us? What kind of person should I be if I'm going to approach God? What kind of person should I be to enter into worship this morning as I come to church? Again, should it be that I just simply call a truce with my family and say, for the hours we're in church, let the war cease. As soon as we get back into the car, let's pick it up again where we left off. Should that be what we do when we come to worship? Well, lots of people do that. They're living for the world. They're living for their own desires. And yet they come to church on Sunday to praise Jesus. Praise you, Lord. In a life that's totally inconsistent because Monday through Saturday, they're not praising Him. They're certainly not living to His praise. They just cut themselves off from the things that God requires of His people. And so you have a scene like you have in Isaiah chapter 1. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. God says in verse 12, When you come to appear before me, when you come to approach me, when you come to have this entrance into my presence that my worship avails you with, who is required of you to trample my courts? God says, this is not something I'm receiving. This is like you coming to trample my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. God says, don't do this. But Lord, you required it. You commanded it. This is your worship that you said we should bring. But God's saying, not in this way. Not in the way that you're doing it. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Don't live your life with self-indulgent, self-absorption, self-will, self-pleasing, without regard to the things I require of you. What does the Lord require of you? Well, to seek justice, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, is what Micah says. God has moral and ethical requirements, and he says we're to be holy as he is holy. To take the standards of his word and have them that which we meditate upon so that it becomes part of us. That we delight to do his will. Here's a people that did not delight to do God's will. Far from it. You know, you want to see the worst of the pictures? Look at Jeremiah chapter 7. There's lots of them in the prophets. But look at what they were doing in Jeremiah chapter 7. This is a sermon that Jeremiah was told to preach at the temple itself. Imagine the boldness that this took for Jeremiah to go up to the gate of the temple and to bring God's word to the people that were entering. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, what must they have been doing? Well, he's going to go on and tell him. If you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, or after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. 
Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers to you in your eyes? That's what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple. My father's house has become a den of robbers. It was to be a house of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a den of robbers. You see, it's on the heels or it's on the backdrop of this horror, horrific history of apostasy from true worship in Israel that these words of the entrance psalms come and correct the people. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall approach his holy tent? Well, not people that are wedded to their sins, but rather he walks blamelessly and does what's right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend. God's reproving a nation so often getting it wrong and not understanding that approaching God makes some requirements upon the question of who we are and how we live and what we do. That a relationship with God transforms. Rituals will never transform. Going through the motion of a ritual will not make a single change in anybody's motivations, in anybody's desires, in anybody's style of life. That's why we all know the people that went to Mass on Sunday and should hear their mouths on Monday and see their lives on Tuesday and note their crimes on Wednesday. Didn't seem to make much of a difference. They went to Mass religiously. But to know God is to know the power of a transformed life. It's another power of a new creation. Well, there's more I had prepared to say, but I've kept you already. I hope this has at least been a little bit of a taste of what we're to expect as we move ahead in the 15th Psalm. There's more to say, but this morning I just will not get to say it. Except to say that God cares about not just that we worship, but how we worship. He, does, he cares about who worships him. And the things that characterize his worshipers. And God has the right to declare what worship he will accept and what worship he will not. And so this is important matters, folks. This is important matters of what, what does constitute a proper approach to the living God. Well, we won't have the answer to it all this morning. But I think we have enough to know that one thing God will not tolerate is hypocrisy. One thing God will not tolerate are people who have fair words but a heart that's bent upon evil. God does not, is not impressed by us coming from a week in which we've been wedded to our own our, our sins and think we can atone for it just by coming to the house of God and going through the ritual. May God humble us before him and make us to be the kind of people that he delights to have drawn near to him. Those things that he requires of us.
may be these be the things that we delight to pursue, that we delight to demonstrate, because these are the things that ultimately reflect who this God is, whom we worship, and whom we serve. This is part of Christ's likeness. See, Jesus was the ideal worshiper, the true worshiper, the one who goes before us in this matter of worship. It's in a real sense, all of us fail in these descriptions that are given in these Psalms. But Jesus perfectly embodies every aspect of this. He indeed is blameless. He always did what was right. He did speak truth in his heart. He did all things that were pleasing in the eyes of his Father. And it's a wonderful thing to have one who is before us as our great high priest who leads us not only in worship to his Father, but leads us to worship the Father in a Christ-like way. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's commit our thoughts to him as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the book of Psalms. We're thankful for the richness of the Psalms. We're thankful that these are not just songs that sound good, but they're songs designed to instruct. These are songs designed to restore. They tell us of how you do restore us to yourself through your word and by your Son in a way that brings true worship to be central to our relationship to you. And so we pray that in the coming weeks, as we look at the subject of entrance into your presence, of delighting in your presence, vindication from your presence, as we look at victory in your presence, that these would be psalms that will become intensely meaningful to every one of us, because they do indeed set out for us what it means to live a God-centered life. So be pleased to draw near as we teach, as we As we look into these psalms in weeks to come, that we would learn from them and by your grace be conformed to their instruction as we come and we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.